1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Katerina Karcher about her excellent new book, Sisters in Arms, Militant Feminism in the Federal Republic of Germany Since 1968. Katerina, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello. Um, it's a pleasure to have you today. As always, we like to begin these interviews with having the author. Tell us a little bit something about themselves.
0: Yes, yeah, so um, originally I'm from Germany, uh, but I've spent most of my adult years in other countries. And I guess I haven't always been interested in history. That's really something that only started um when I realised that there's a lot that isn't mentioned in the conventional history books. And I got quite interested in that. And I think I work on contemporary history because I love talking to contemporary witnesses and I love hearing stories that I've never heard before. And I love working with sources that come straight from A dusty box in somebody's attic. I guess I don't really know whether I can blame the label historian because I have a CV that was once described by someone on an interview panel at the University of Cambridge as (laughs) ecstatic. And I guess there was some truth in that, really, because I studied um, three different subjects in three different countries and that interdisciplinary background has really informed my perspective on history. So, I'm actually also not based in the history department, but in a department of modern languages. Um, and that is really a place, at least here in the UK, where it's not on history, but also politics, gender, and cultural theory, and where most people do all of those things. So that really is an environment in which I feel very comfortable, and I guess in which I would also situate my work.
1: Yeah, that's that's interesting that uh, you get to uh, work across many disciplines, Uh, and it shows in this book that uh, um, your background is more interdisciplinary. So that good uh, good time for us to talk about the book in question. Um, How did you come up with this topic for this book?
0: Yeah, so like many books, this one started as a dissertation. and it was the product of a long and quite substantial revision process. Um, because my PhD was actually focusing on female participation in armed leftist groups in the Federal Republic of Germany. That focused on the period since 1970. And I guess, like many people, I was interested in the reasons why women take up arms, especially take up arms in a country like Germany, um, which was a, a democracy after World War Two. And there is a fair bit of research on this question, of course, but it's focusing almost exclusively on some of the sort of well-known uh, groups like the Red Army Faction or Bader meinhof Gang, which you might have heard of. And I was interested in these groups, but um, there were also other groups that have received hardly any attention, and that's what I found particularly interesting. So as part of my PhD then, I've tried to track down sources, to try tried to interview former members of these groups and find out more about their ideas and activities. Um, And that's really why the book draws on a range of sources, um, including interviews, archival research, court files and press coverage. But what is interesting is that um, there is a lot of discussion about the question of feminism and female terrorism in Germany. But there was really not a single scholarly study of political violence with a feminist agenda and so this is where I wanted to come in and then the PhD evolved into a book about that particular question and it's not only looking at political violence it's also looking at um small-scale acts of militancy and protests more generally so it's looking at a range of activities um, such as protests, marches, also street theatre, graffiti trips to abortion clinics, and even things like clogged toilets and torch cars, um, and poems and flyers and songs and all of those things, really. Um, what were some of the,
1: the challenges of working on a project like this?
0: I guess when you work on a topic that is not traditionally um, included in the curriculum, for example, in this case, in the feminist curriculum, when you work on Feminist political violence, you will always have people who say, hold on a second, that is, that doesn't exist. You know, uh, protest that is feminist is always non-violent, and uh, political violence can never be feminist. So you would have quite difficult debates with people who question that uh, the phenomenon that you want to study actually deserves any attention, and if so, that should be included in the history of feminism and I think that's one of the challenges that we face when we try to um, really work on new topics or work on old topics in a new way. But that's probably also one of the most exciting things for us as scholars and as historians to do. So I've always enjoyed that challenge. So
1: let's begin um, with the the first chapter of the book. a lot of our listeners are not going to be familiar with sort of the new women's movement that you discuss in the beginning of your book. I'm wondering if you could just give us a little brief history of it. um talk a little bit about who joined the movement, um, their backgrounds, uh, how did it evolve and change over time? Um I know that's quite a lot, but we'll, <laughs> we'll start there.
0: Yeah, I can maybe start with um, just a brief explanation of the term in women's because a lot of people might not be familiar with this. And um, there are, of course, very different names for the feminist movements that have emerged in the post-World War II era. And probably the most common of them is second by feminism. That's one that we probably all have come across. And that term is also used in German. Um but I prefer the term new women's movement, um, and there's really two reasons for that. The first is that, um this movement, that was that this new women's movement developed new organisation structures in a political agenda that was quite different from that of previous women's movements. Uh, so in Germany, for example, we had a bourgeois women's movement and a proletarian bourgeois, uh, proletarian women's movement in the early 20th century. And this new women's movement tried to do things slightly differently. And um, then there's also an important uh, intellectual and political influence and that is that of the New Left, um, so the anti authoritarian Left um, of the 1960s. Um, the New Women's Movement was strongly inspired by the political spirit of protest activities and by the ideas of the New Left um, protest activities from that time, for example, they include in teaching and civil disobedience, a lot that we associate with that time. And if you try to sort of um, locate it on, on um, uh, a history timeline, one could say that uh, the New and formed in the late 1960s, gathered momentum in the 1970s, and then lasted approximately until the late 80s or 1990, really, because of course, then the political landscape in Germany changed a lot to the unification and just also a globalization of feminist ideas and feminist struggles. And, um, in the 1970s, the new women's movement created a really interesting and quite diverse network of local and national organizations, but there were also social centers, women's shelters, there things bookstores, publishing houses, magazines, a lot of social platforms, uh, where women met discussed. discuss and organised campaigns and these campaigns focused on a range of topics as well and that's of course something that I look at in my book but I don't discuss the whole range of topics. Um, Some topics include childcare, education, sexuality, reproductive rights but also things like violence against women and um, it's really a very diverse and decentralised movement uh, which makes it exciting but also quite difficult to study uh, until this day.
1: Um, You you mentioned early on in your book that um, there was a split within sort of the more radical feminists with more traditional leftist groups that had other goals aside from feminist goals. I'm wondering if you could explain this a little bit, this break um, and and why um, Women's issues, feminist issues weren't as important to some of these traditional group, uh, traditional leftist groups led by men.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so the GEO movement, um, was really a movement that had men and women involved. Of course, it, um, it was still uh, overall a, a fairly middle class and privileged part of the population, but, um, there were men and women involved. And, there were some really interesting debates because although, uh, leftist activists at the time tried to live very differently and break with a lot of the conventions, they didn't really break with all conventions. And there was still, in a lot of contexts, a quite gendered division of labor. And, um, that also applied to the most radical pockets of the student movement, including um, the SDS, which is the Germanic to Institute, uh, the, the American um, uh, group, really, so uh, a socialist student organization. And um, it is in 1968 that there was a real conflict really in September 1968, where a group of women from um, within this group who identified with the aims and politics of the New Left hold on guys, we can't continue like this because we have been trying to bring these anti-authoritarian politics into our everyday lives, but this is not possible because we are alone with child care, we are alone with all the domestic tasks and that needs to change. Um So there was a, a real rebellion within the rebellion of the students um, and that is really what a lot of scholars describe as. Uh, the founding moment of the new women's
1: movement. So you um you sort of touched on um I mean, there's, there's divisions and there's two sort of ways that um these feminist groups go. Some turn away from violence, others sort of embrace um more radical measures, um not necessarily going out and beating people up, but more radical. Um can you Talk a little bit about why that divergence takes place and, and maybe this is a good time to sort of introduce um, some of the more radical groups.
0: Mm-hmm. So there's definitely always been a diversity when it comes to the question of how we should change the world. <laughs> and that also applies to feminists. And um, there were a lot of campaigns um, where women tried to campaign uh, for change using legal, constitutional means, but it's interesting that there was also a history of uh, feminist militancy, really, and this is something that I try to uh, bring into that debate. Um, feminist militancy is something that, in the context of my book, I define as historically and politically specific ideas and practices aim to overcome sexist oppression and are based on the assumption that this objective can only be reached with a confrontational attitude. So I'm trying to show that there have always been confrontational tactics used in campaigns and that that was the case in particular in some campaigns where um, a lot of activists felt that illegal means didn't go um, far enough, weren't allowing people to reach their aim and, um, that's always a tricky question because we cannot just assume that there is a consensus on the question of which tactics are seen as legitimate and as productive in political struggles. That is something that is very often really contested. And that's definitely the case in the women's movement. And I think one of the reasons why, um, there were a lot of activists who were refusing Um, and rejecting technology, rejecting violent means of protest, was that they felt that that was a sort of patriarchal thing, violence, or they felt that um, they wanted to fight for a better world and uh, wanted to fight for a world without violence and therefore couldn't use violence to reach that aim. that's definitely something that led to interesting debate, and these debates were fueled by um, the armed struggle of some groups in Germany in the 1970s. So, of course, there's also historical context in, in the particular German case, but I think those debates about the means and limits of legitimate protest are quite universal. And we find them in a German women's movement, but we find them in any other movement as well.
1: Um. Could you uh, name for us the sort of the the, the big important groups that um, our listeners should be aware of as we continue to go on in your book?
0: hmm So one group that I have developed um, a real interest in is called um, Red Zora. And that is a group that um, has actually adopted a name from the children's book from 1941. Um, and it, it, it saw this um, as an inspiration for its politics, and that book tells the story of a wild gang of street children, um, led by a young girl, and who were fighting against social injustice. And the Zora wanted to fight back against sexist oppression and violence against women, and sort of said that it can be liberating or necessary for women to use violent means to do so. and between 1977 and 90, uh, 95 the group carried out more than the attack um, including bombings, arson attacks and, and, and other other things really. Um, and all of those attacks were directed against property, not against people. but the state still classified this as a terrorist organization. and uh, then there were a range of other groups um, which I mentioned as well. one is called the Amazons. Uh, the Amazons <laughs> and the name of this is quite suggestive I think the Amazons had quite a similar ideology to the Red Zora. And there was a group which emerged within um, the context of the armed leftist group, Revolutionary Cells, which called itself Women the Revolutionary Cells, Um, and again a group that carried out bombings. Um, And all of those groups were fighting for the aims that um, other families were fighting for as well, but they did it using explicitly violent means.
1: And I think it's important to highlight um, that they, they they almost, according from what I read from your book, um, never uh, engaged in violence towards people. It was mm-hmm. only property.
0: It was only property. But of course, one of the criticism of these groups is that it's extremely difficult to make sure that nobody gets hurt. You know, um, if you're using explosives, if you're using incendiary devices, which they did. Uh, To be fair, they have used uh, things like slow burning incendiary devices with timers, so they would only start the fires when they thought that nobody would be in a building. Um, They have been quite careful, so actually nobody um, did get hurt in in any of those attacks. At the same time, of course, it is still um, very dangerous stuff. So so there, there is a criticism of them saying, well, how can you know that you will actually never hurt anyone if you use such means of protest?
1: Um let's turn to the, the next issue. Um reproductive rights um had a central um a central place in your book. It was in the middle chapter. Um obviously it's a it's a critical issue for Feminist groups. um, If you could lay the uh, lay out the landscape for us with reproductive rights in Germany um, at the time that you're dealing with, and and what are they fighting for? What are they fighting against? um, And then I'll follow up.
0: Mm -hmm. So this is obviously a very timely question that we're still discussing today. And like in the United States and many other parts of the world, uh, feminist activists in Germany have been fighting for reproductive rights for a long time. So essentially this means that individuals uh, should be allowed to choose whether or not they want children, and if so, how many. And in order to make that choice, we need things like sex education, access to contraception, and we need to be able to say no to sex. Um, abortion plays an interesting role in these debates. Um, and from the early days of feminist activism in the late 19th century in Germany, feminist activists have campaigned for a legalization of abortion. And this was because they knew really that, um, every year hundreds of thousands of women got pregnant against their will. Uh, that there were many who felt that they had to terminate a pregnancy, for example, for medical or psychological reasons. And that each year thousands were dying um, trying to have to perform illegal abortions. And um, in Germany, the abortion ban goes back to the 19th century. It was introduced in 1871. And there were attempts to change the legislation in the Weimar Republic, um, so in the interwar period. But the law really remained unchanged until uh, the National Socialists came into power. And that then sort of changed things. But after World War II the Allied powers, reintroduced the amended version of the law from 1871, so in many ways that was uh, a step back in time. Um, And according to paragraph 218 of the uh, Criminal Code of the Federal Republic of Germany, abortion was a punishable act that could lead to a year-long prison sentence for the actors involved. So that was the situation after uh, World War II. And that was a law that a lot of people struggled with Um, by the late 1960s, even supporters of the abortion ban acknowledged reform was needed, Um, one of the reasons being that the law was applied inconsistently, and actually there was a lot of evidence suggesting that it didn't prevent illegal abortions. So this is really the starting point for a wave of feminist protests against paragraph 218. And again, it's about, uh, very much in the spirit of the time, about women demanding the right to decide about their own bodies. And, um, in Germany, that meant that they were no longer prepared to accept that Catholic priests, male politicians and male doctors taught them what to do and not to do in this case. Um, it's a pity. Oh, um, sorry.
1: I want, oh yeah. no, I, I just wanted to ask a, a follow up. Um, you mentioned that even supporters of the band, um, Sort of knew the law needed to be reformed and it was applied inconsistently. Uh, can you just uh, tell us what you mean by that? And, and if, and I certainly understand if you don't know off the top of your head, but do you have any, um, any sort of numbers as to how many uh, women were actually prosecuted under this law? Was this law, I guess what I'm asking is, was this law mm. used regularly?
0: Yeah. So, so that's, that's a good question, of course, in this context. And it's really difficult, uh, to come up with, with exact numbers. But, um, what I've read consistently in previous research is that, um, the numbers were surprisingly low. Um, so, in other words, that most people got away with it and it was quite difficult to persecute them. And if people were persecuted quite often, um, it was not really followed, uh, through to the end. So, um, it was, it, it was not um, applied as consistently as it could have been in, in, in the 1960s and, and, probably before.
1: Um, yeah, thank you. I just, uh, I wanted to clarify that. Um, so how did some of these groups, um, go after these laws, try to change them? What were some mm-hmm. of their campaigns that they used?
0: Mm-hmm. So initially they just tried to, Gathered support and did so very successfully because polls from 1971 um, already showed that more than 80% of women in West Germany were opposed to the, to the abortion ban. So there was a lot about going out in the street, discussing it with people, educating them, um, organising petitions, and that campaign then really built up considerable pressure on the government. So in 1974. Um, The government felt that they had to respond to this, and um, they passed a reform of paragraph 218. Um, And that could have been the end, but it wasn't, because uh, immediately when that law was passed, Conservative politicians appealed against the reform of the Federal Constitutional Court, which is the highest German court. And then the the case was discussed there in February 1975, the judges um, declared that this new legislation, this reform was void and they ruled, and this is mainly um, something I could quote because it shows how awkward and difficult um, this language was. They said, the protection of the fetus as a matter of principle and for the entire duration of the pregnancy has priority over the self-determination of the pregnant woman and must not be called into question for any period of time. So. That was the decision, by the way, a decision that also really not just divided the public, but also divided the judges at the court, including the one woman who was involved in the decision and who proposed that decision. Um But it's still a decision that was final and that left the opponents of the abortion ban with no legal means to proceed against paragraph 218. And it's interesting that it is at that point, say so 1975, when some groups turned to violent means of protest, um, and the first uh, attack in this context was a bombing at the Federal Court of uh, Justice, so the, the Federal Constitutional Court, which uh, detonated on a Saturday afternoon in March 1975. So again, we have nobody in the building with um, an attack that caused substantial property damage, and um there was also a bombing at the headquarters of the German Medical Association in Cologne in April 1977. And that is an attack that was carried out by uh, members of the Sora who I have mentioned earlier. And what is interesting is that there were those militant um, actions against paragraph 218, and there was a continued effort to fight against this law, but it's still in force. So that uh, today. Um, there have been some uh, additions and some changes to the law, um, so for example abortions remain unpunished in cases in which women were raped or um, cases in which they are health-concerned. Um, and women are also allowed to have abortions within the first three months if they can provide evidence that they have visited in an officially registered advisory centre. But in the eyes of many feminist activists, this doesn't go far enough. And it, it's still um, difficult for women to find doctors who are willing to um, carry out abortions because doctors can be fined for publicly declaring that they carry out abortions. So really this struggle against Paragraph 118 is an ongoing struggle, and um, there is still a lot to do on that.
1: So. It- So if I understand you correctly, even, even after unification and even all the way up to today, 2019, the, the law in Germany is quite restrictive.
0: Yes. And that's really, um, I think that was a a shock in particular for, um, women from the former GDR because, um, in the GDR, it was, um, the legislation was just a lot more liberal when it, when it came to abortion. So for them, that was a step back, a massive step back when they then were confronted with um effectively with the West German legislation
1: like, yeah okay um yeah I think I think this is a good um place to switch to an, another topic um you, you've mentioned um a couple of times now uh violence against women and and how this was a sort of a, a, a critical component um in the feminist movement um can you again give us sort of the broad landscape of um how prevalent was violence against women um was it sort of ep- epidemic at the time, um, in uh, of men or something?
0: So, violence against women again is a topic, it had been an issue in earlier feminist movements in Germany, but then was taken up by activists in the new women's movement, and they really have not just tried to create attention for this issue, but also in many ways redefined the whole matter um to highlight the gravity of this problem so in the eyes of many experts at the time violence thing was not simply about things thing that just happened to some individuals but they saw it as a structural problem um and i guess that's something i could illustrate with one example so rape was a crime in the Federal republic of germany also back then but only if the person who raped you was not your husband um so it was socially expected that married women have sexual intercourse with their husbands and marital rape was not considered a crime. So um of course that then meant that a feminist struggle would not just have to tackle the legal definition of rape, but also the underlying assumption that women had to be submissive to the husbands and they had to be sexually available at all times and other sort of sexist stereotype. Uh, stereotypes. Um in the new women's movement's violence against women was not limited the the use of physical force. And um, you also have to think about things like psychological abuse, hate speech, and um, and for them back then also things like kept calling, pornography and objectification of women in the media. So these were all things that they saw as forms of violence against women. And what is interesting is that there was a lot of consensus and agreement when it came to um how broadly this subject should be defined. But there were very different responses to it, and very different opinions when it came to the question of how this problem could be tackled. Um, so there were a lot of women who armed themselves with pepper sprays. There were women who learned martial arts to be able to present themselves in the case of an attack. But there were also things, of course, that were more difficult uh, to tackle. Um, and yeah, this is really where it gets interesting when we look at um, things that some groups have done. Um, so I'm only talking about a minority here, but there were definitely groups who felt that they had to take justice in their own hands to fight back against violence and abuse. So um, one example is that when we started revenge campaigns against alleged rapists, so for example, publicly naming and shaming them. And um, this is something that um, might sound extreme, but I think it's important to analyze such complaints uh, against the background of the difficulties and obstacles that victims of sexual violence faced. Uh, so when they were actually trying to take their abuse to court, that was really difficult for them. And, um, you can imagine that, um, that as the act of legal and justice caused great controversy in family circles. So there were um, felt that would, that could be liberating and empowering to them. Um, for women, effectively, to to publicly shame their abusers, to attack them, to fight back, but there were also a lot of others who criticised that such actions were inexcusable, and that would bring the entire women's movement into disrepute. So there were a lot of debates around that question in particular. Um, but there were also other things um, like reclaim the night marches. That's something that started in the late 1970s, and um, that was effectively women. Marching through parts of their cities where they felt uncomfortable and safe usually when they would go there on their own. Uh, one one example is the Red Light District in Frankfurt. I don't know if they, they've ever been in Frankfurt. It's very close to the central station. And uh, you can easily just end up uh, right in the middle of the Red Light District without noticing, but you definitely notice it very soon when you're there. And so what women tried to do was to um, go there collectively, dress up as witches. Um, and they, at least some of them apparently were armed with stickers and flower bags and then there were surprising men who came out of sex shops and you can imagine that uh, those men didn't find that very funny at all um, but there were also some groups again that went further than that uh, we have the Red Dora we have, um, have the Militant Summers groups placing um, stink bombs and incendiary devices in sex shops Express their rage against the ways in which women were portrayed in sex films at the time. And maybe I need to add here as a footnote: uh, some of those activists involved in, in these actions have later admitted that there was a huge problem uh, with these kind of attacks because if you're trying to protest against the ways in which women are treated in a sex industry, and then you uh, plant a sting put a sting bomb into the sex shop, and actually there might be a woman working there um you kind of uh attack um one of the people you think of as victims of, of this industry and that clearly can't be a very good thing. But there were also things um uh, just to add um one or two more things um there were also court cases so some, some women tried to uh see publishers um who were trying to boost their faith with suggested images of half naked or naked women and they would go in other protests at the editorial offices of such magazines. And um, there was really a lot more happening when it came to the symbolic violence against women in in the media and and women trying to tackle that.
1: I I did want to ask a a follow-up on something you said. Um, You mentioned they would go to these areas like the Red Light District. Um, How did they deal with or interact with um, female sex workers?
0: Yeah. So, so this is, this is a really interesting question because quite often people would not necessarily meet each other. Um, so, uh, they, they would actually walk around on the streets and they would try to engage men who they came across. But, uh, they would hardly go into, um, for example, back, back then there were still those kind of cinemas where you would, um, pay money and then go and watch, uh, a woman perform a dance or something like that. Uh, quite often, women didn't even make it uh, that far to really engage in a conversation with with those women, and I think that's definitely one of the problems um, that a lot of that activism had, because um, there were no deliberate efforts in some cases to engage in a conversation with women who were working in these areas, and of course, also men and other people who might not necessarily want those jobs but have to do them. Um, so. That's one of the shortcomings of that campaign. And I think, retrospectively, quite a lot of activists have thought about that and have tried to act and interact differently with the people they want to fight for. But that can be quite difficult. And retrospectively, for example, a member of um, the Red Sora said that back then a lot of her ideas about sex workers um, were based on a quite Christian understanding of, of good and bad sexuality, and she said uh, that actually uh, meant that she wasn't really engaging with these women and trying to find out, for example, why they were doing the jobs they were doing. And I think, of course, that's what we now know. That's absolutely crucial when you want to support someone. You need to find out first what you can do to support them and whether they want your help at all
1: yeah no th- thank you for that um i just i found that um an interesting part of the book because that's something that definitely feminist movements have moved on you know the, the decades following um you know rights for sex workers and trying to understand that issue a little bit more um broadly um and that it's very complicated um there was one other follow up from what you said in this last question that I was interested in in um you have brought up uh marital rape. Um and, and I was curious uh just as when did that become against the law in Germany?
0: Yeah, so um that was a really, really long struggle again. Um and it was um it was really it was really yeah, it had to be, so it had to be tackled in a number of ways. So there was a lot of protest um on the street initially and then um there was there was um uh there was a legal campaign on uh, on, on behalf of women was, like both um carried out like it was men and women and it was really only in the nineties i think uh, that 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 became a crime and so i think it was nineteen uh, ninety seven that that the legislation finally changed, so it's one of those very long
1: so <laughs> say, So it took it took a while. Um yeah. Um so let's let's move to the to the last chapter of the book and uh discuss the transnational aspects of the new women's movement. And um let, let's start with um talking about how it was transnational, um the challenges of making it transnational, and then we'll add, I'll we'll talk about some of the specific um things that you you discuss in the chapter.
0: Mm -hmm. So there is a long tradition of internationalism and feminist thinking and campaigning. And that, of course, that doesn't mean that there is no racism or class bias or there's no other problems. And um, one of the problems that we had in in the women's movement in in the Western world was that there was a tradition of privileged white women in the West thinking that they know what is best for their poor sisters. Of course, there was a language of universal sisterhood, at times in less wealthy parts of the world. And this is something that really became relevant, um, of course, because activists uh, had to talk to the women who they wanted to fight with and fight for. And that was not always easy. So if you want to find out what someone means to making your clothes, um, producing them somewhere in Bangladesh, it's not necessarily easy to just reach out to them and say, hello, you know, I've just bought this, this pair of jeans that you've made. I'd really like to know more about your working conditions and about your life. So there were language problems. There were problems of trying to find people, trying to communicate with them. Um, But there's definitely also a genuine interest in in the New Women's Movement to try to work with and support uh, women in other parts of the world. And there's also some examples and case studies in my book um, that shows that that is definitely possible.
1: Yeah, and I think this is a good time to talk about the Adler fashion, a flair fashion protests um, you could explain to us what those are, um, and who was involved, and, uh.
0: Yeah, so I guess most of us, and I include myself on this, know very little about the garment factories in which our clothes are made. Sometimes we read about them because has been another scandal in, in some factory. But it's quite difficult to, um, follow the production line backwards, so to speak. And that was quite similar in the 1980s. Um, so, uh, this campaign really came into being when a group of workers in the Global South, in this case in South Korea, reached out to women in West Germany. And In that case, um, these uh, workers contacted the Korean women's group in West Berlin um, with a request essentially for, for sisterly help, they called it. And that was in 1968, uh, 1986. And um, in their uh, letter, the workers described the main working conditions in this Adler factory in South Korea. So it's a factory that was produced and now for the German clothing chain Adler and which still exists to this day. And now claims to be one of the first uh, fair trade companies, by the way. So that's something we can talk about later. Um because then eighty five percent in the workers of, of that factory were women, so a, a really high percentage of women, um quite Typical of the garment industry in South Korea at that time, and most of them were unskilled workers on minimum wages, most of them quite young as well. And um, they felt uh, that uh, they were exploited. They didn't get breaks. There was sexual harassment at the workplace, and they had tried to tackle these problems with a local campaign, but the management of the factory. both the local management and also the island management in Germany had responded to that campaign, essentially with violence and repression. So they were desperate, and that's why they contacted South Korean women and just women more generally in in Germany. And it's interesting because this letter then really sparked a thriving solidarity campaign in West Germany, and that campaign involved actors from across the political spectrum, including women's rights organisations, Christian groups. Well, the trade unions, the leftist groups, there so really um, a range of actors, and um, there was lobbying, campaigning, um, publishing articles, but um the island management denied any wrongdoing, and they just tried to sort it out. They just tried to ignore the protests in Germany, and it's interesting that this changed. Um, this changed in 1987 when the Milton feminist group Sora and, um, again, uh, also some other groups, including the little that I mentioned earlier called the Amazons carried out a series of arson attacks against artless stores in West Germany. They, um, they were using, uh, slow burning, quite simple, um, incendiary devices. And they, uh, placed them in clothes, um, in items of clothes, um, in, in these, um, stores. And, uh, they had timers, which then, started fires on, on a weekend, um, after the shops had closed. And nobody got heard, but the, um, company, so Adler claimed that, um, they had a loss of 30 to 35 million Deutsche Mark, which is, of course, a, a massive loss. And there were like, uh, really a number of those kinds of attacks. And as a attack, the, um, Adler management made a surprising turnaround. So, uh suddenly they they said something, they responded and they said that uh they saw no alternative but to become too violent. So the management effectively promised to meet the demand of the workers in the South Korean factory because they felt that's what they had to do to prevent further attack. And um that's of course something that you can imagine sparked really controversial debate because of course everyone was relieved that Adler had finally agreed to improve the working conditions in um, the factory. but uh, Many groups who were involved in the severity campaign did not agree with the violent tactics used by the red Store and the Amazon. And um, there was also um, a big criticism of Adler because uh, rather than responding to lawful and peaceful protests, they seemed to react at a point when um, violence was used. And um, we have a really interesting debate that lasted for weeks and months about the question of whether it was a, a good thing to use tactics in this case. But it clearly is a is a case that suggests that companies do respond when they're seen under a lot of pressure. And in this case, they responded by accepting the demands of the workers in that particular factory. And I'd love to say that that's a um, uh, happy ending for the workers in South Korea, but sadly that was not really uh, the case because it was quite a strategic move. Adler agreed um, to all those demands and then a few years later relocated its production to Sri Lanka, which was probably a lot cheaper than South Korea at that point. Um, so. But it shows that, again, this transnationalism needs to be an ongoing process and there needs to be a a continuous conversation between activists and workers in different countries.
1: Um, Are there any other examples that are quite as, I guess, um, for the lack of a better word, uh, famous? Um, Because you mentioned the massive amount of losses that Adler took um, with the destruction of their property is there any sort of parallel um example or is this really the big one?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think this really is is the big one and um, because it was such a concerted uh campaign. There are also other interesting examples where um um for example companies were targeted that were developing new technology in, in Germany um and um working on genetic engineering. But it's really hard to show so clearly what uh, a response um, was and, and uh, what the response to violent tactics in particular was. So that's one of the big challenges that we face when trying to analyse those campaigns because of course there's always a complex interplay of different tactics and um, companies can say one thing but do another thing. So um, to, to analyse the responses of particular companies who can target it by protest we also have to look at a range of things including, for example, um yeah, their, their 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 profits and um, their promises and then uh, analyze whether these promises were kept. So I guess in a way I've chosen an easy path by working on that case study because it is it is one that is um, more obvious and definitely involves a lot more property damage than some of the other ones that one could look at.
1: Right, and um, just uh, a quick. So before you mentioned they moved the factory to Sri Lanka. Um, did but did they actually before they moved the factory? Did did they actually make any improvements?
0: Yes. So so they they reemployed um, alleged ringleaders of the protest. Um, they increased wages. They have they have delivered on their promises, and actually, quite a few of the activists who have been involved in the solidarity campaign maintained a relationship with workers there. So. They wanted to see through that those promises were kept.
1: Um, and you mentioned in this chapter that um, oftentimes these women in these factories were were subject to sexual abuse from their, I guess, overseers or supervisors. Um, were they in any way punished?
0: Yep. Yeah. The men? No, I don't think so. I think what they tried to do was to replace the management. And, um, um, then workers afterwards, afterwards said that, uh, there were no more of those sexual, um, offenses essentially, but, um, there was still, there was still a lack of empathy and a very, um, brutal approach by, by overseers in the factory. So, um, um, yeah, it's quite interesting to see that, um, of course, it's shocking to see, uh, that the sort of sexual abuse of power, but at the same time, that there, there can be other horrible things as well that people do. And although that the the sexual behavior of of people improved in the factory, um, women didn't necessarily feel more comfortable at the workplace.
1: Okay. Um, so we're we're coming up on on fifty minutes, so I'm, I'm, we'll wrap up con- um, discussion of your book. By having you tell us um one or two things you would like people who are both listening to this interview and who will hopefully go out and read your book um that you would like them to take
0: away from it yeah I think that's always that's that's an interesting question. I think what I would like people to take away is that it's worth looking a bit more closely at feminist protest really um Previous research of feminist activism in Germany is focused almost exclusively on protests that is commonly understood as peaceful, and I think it's very obvious from what I've said that that's not the whole story. So I think it's really interesting for us, when looking at feminist protests, but also at protest movements more generally, to look at this complex interplay of peaceful and violent tactics in campaigns, and also. To acknowledge that there was considerable disagreement over the question um, uh, which tactics were legitimate and necessary in, in the feminist struggle against sexist oppression. So it's interesting for us to ask ourselves when do we use the terms violence and non-violence and what does that mean to us and can we assume that they always mean the same thing throughout history and even within a particular movement. And I think the answer to that is, is no. <laughs> Um, so I think we need a lot more of that research, but like really uh, keep people feel uh, inspired and, and thinking about those questions more um, in history.
1: So, um, one final question before I let you go. Um, now that this book is done and on the shelf, um, hopefully people are, are picking it up and reading it. Um, what are you working on now? What's your next project?
0: I'm currently working on a study of the UK exile of the West German Student actors Rudi Dutschke. Uh, some of you, at least those with a bit of knowledge or interest in, in German history might know Rudi Dutschke. He was sort of the icon of the West German student movement. And he came to England after an assassination attempt in West Berlin in 1968. And he wanted to do a PhD at the University of Cambridge. But it's quite interesting these use <laughs> well, that's spoiler now but he was kicked out of the country before he could start his dissertation because the Home Office considered him a threat to national security. So of course especially interesting in the time um, that we have here now in the UK with Brexit looming over us is the question uh, who and what is perceived as a threat to national security and why are certain foreigners and especially foreign students seen as a threat and get kicked out of the country. So so this is what I'm working on at the moment.
1: Well, it, it sounds fascinating, and uh, no pressure. But when you, when you finish and it becomes a book, um, I'd love to have you back to talk about it. I want to I want to thank thank Dr. Carter again for agreeing to be on the show. Um, and her book, Sister in Arms: Militant no Feminism in the Federal Republic, in, uh, <clears throat> Federal Republic of Germany since 1968, is out now. Um, I believe it's coming out in paperback in November. Yeah, um, that's so, right. Yeah. Um, so there will be an, an opportunity to get it in paperback. Um, I highly recommend it. Um, it's a fascinating book about a period of history that I know myself didn't know a lot about. Um, and I think it will be made to many of you. Um, so I want to thank you all for listening. And uh, we will see you all next time.